it's terrible. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's it's actually worse because you think you, you think you know what they did a couple times. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's Until the, the last two pages of the script, yeah. you're pretty sure you know. <laughs> and then finally, the last beat of the play, really, you re- you realize, oh no. Yeah. They did that even. It's worse than mm. you thought, kind of. That'd be an ethical question. Greetings and welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Christensen. And thank you all for tuning in and listening. We're really excited about this podcast. We've been kind of dreaming it up for a little while as a way to kind of talk about plays and and dramatic literature and get into some of the deeper conversations about that. So I'm super excited to kind of get to talk about this. Yeah, I think both uh, both Jackson and I are really interested in having conversations about plays and their structures and their characters and the way that playwrights use words and scenes. And um, I think that having a conversation with each other about it is a great way to go. And why not record it and see if other people want to join us on the conversation as well? Yes, indeed. We've had kind of a long history of talking about plays together. We did a lot of plays in college and wrote or adapted a play together and directed it together and did did a lot of good theatrical work through that time. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm excited to get to hang out with you and talk about plays and all of you people as well listening. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, To start with, we're kicking it off with uh, Lynn Nottage's play Sweat, which was the 2017 Pulitzer Prize winning play. It was uh, uh, first performed out Oregon Way. Um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival was where the first performance happened, and it gradually went uh, by way of Washington, D.C. to Broadway and played there for, for quite a while. Um, yeah, it made its uh, New York premiere at the Public Theater on November 3rd of 2016. And uh, yeah, it's it's. It's going to be a really fun play to talk about. Lynn Nottage is uh, a previous Pulitzer-winning play uh, playwright for the play Ruined, and uh, which I'm sure we'll work our way around to eventually, too, because that's a wonderful script as well. But uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about Sweat to start with. Yeah, I'm really excited. I, I love the idea of starting with a Lynn Nottage play, one of my favorite playwrights. I got to see her play, one of my favorites of hers, called Intimate Apparel. Got to mm. see it at Professional Theater here in Fayetteville last year, and I loved the production, and I had previously read and loved the script, so I'm excited to do Sweat. The story of Sweat follows the employees and workers at a factory in the town of Reading, Pennsylvania. It's a play about unions. It's a play about the families of the people that work there. They're a, a, it's a set of longtime employees who, over the course of the play, kind of find themselves put out by the company, and um, they're already unionized. So together with their union, they try to fight back against being put out. One of their group ends up becoming a manager at the factory, and so some of the blame for this is put on her, and she's got a son, um, and, and those sons end up, I'm sure Jack and I will get around to, um, end up uh, engaging in some some violence that kind of culminate the sphere of the play. It's got a really interesting way of looking back at the scenes. Um, yeah. The two 
maybe the two main characters, there's a lot of really prominent characters in the show, but maybe the two protagonists, or uh, we might discuss that today, who we think the protagonist is, but Mm -hmm. if I were to take a guess, I might say that it was either Chris or Jason. They're the two sons of two mothers who work at the factory, and they also work at the factory. And the play starts with Jason in a probation officer's office, um, and the probation officer is kind of chatting with him. Jason's got a big black eye, um, and the probation officer is trying to get out of him. What's going on? And Jason alludes to the fact that, oh, he's seen Chris for the first time. Um, yeah. And then it shifts, and the probation officer is now talking with Chris in that same office. Um, and so then we get us to sort of look back on the play. I'm wondering, Jet, how do you feel about the way that you know, we slowly learn throughout the course of the play what has gotten Chris and Jason to the point where they were in jail and then subsequently let out and in a probation office. Yeah, yeah. This play does a lot of really fun stuff with time in general. Yeah. Uh, you bounce back and forth between the year 2000 and the year 2008 when the when uh, after Chris and Jason have uh, finished their term in prison and are trying to rejoin society, uh, you jump back and forth between these timelines quite a bit. Um and, and this really controls your information as to how, or it controls the rate at which you receive information as to how they wound up there to begin with. It's kind of the, the, the first moment we get is wondering why these guys were in prison. And, uh, and, and throughout the play, you're kind of, that, that is the through line, uh, deceptively so, because most of the action isn't driven by them. Yeah, actually, the I found myself the first time I read it sort of forgetting that we were supposed to be acquiring information about why they had been put in prison. And we meet the characters, and they're so different from the way that they are in the probation office after having come out of jail. You just sort of forget and get living in the present moment, which takes place about the 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of the you know the quote present moment of the player. Maybe it's the past moment and the future version of themselves after they get out of jail is the present moment. But either way, you sort of live in the two thousands, um, yeah. and then suddenly you you get a scene from two thousand and eight right after they get out of prison, and it's oh that's right they are out <laughs> yeah. of prison. These two great kids who I think you you kind of fall in love with them as young re- you know rebellious young men. Um, mm-hmm. Then you remember oh that's right they're getting out of prison. Crap! I wonder what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you uh, so let's get into real quick. I, I like I like the where where you went right away is is it's interesting that you mentioned that Chris and Jason might be considered the protagonists of the play um, because you know in my read through of the play the 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 trio are so prominent. You've got the 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 two mothers of these two of yeah, Jason and Chris. Those two, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Tra- uh, Tracy and. Cynthia are the two mothers of these of of Jason and Chris, and uh, then their friend Jesse. And the play kind of the the t- the two thousand timeline kind of takes place around their their three birthdays. Right. Um, nice kind of pillars that you hit yeah, as they, you see their their the, friendship the evolve. The scenes where you meet them are all in a bar. Um, yeah. and they all take place for one reason or another that they're meeting to celebrate something. So it's typically a birthday. There's one spot in the middle where they meet to celebrate a promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever the case, they are meeting to have some sort of a party or a get together, which I actually like as a way to get them into the bar. Um, yeah. So many bar plays and bar shows 
just assume that people are in the bar every night and that yeah, that's like this where is the all hub. This, yeah, it's like you're alcoholics, all of you, <laughs> yeah. if you're drinking this much. And yeah. they, several of the characters are pretty clearly alcoholics. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that's sort of beside the point that they really come to the bar, at least as far as you know, for these celebrations. Um, which, mm-hmm. I think it helps to get the understanding of why they're in this very public place, which is necessary because lots of people come through this public space while they're there. Yes. Yeah, and 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 that so that that progression then of of you get to hang out with them in the bar, um, but almost always you're learning about an event before it happens within the context of the play. Um, you're learning about um, what is uh, Chris and Jason's crime of, uh, and and this was this was actually one of my favorite things about it. You assume going into it, you're you're pretty ready for them to kill Oscar, the bus boy. Right, like, especially towards the end of the play, as it starts, yes. to, the tension about Oscar starts to build. You get you mm-hmm. get ready for that to happen, or you know, and, especially with the, that final scene going into it. You say, yeah. "This is they're going to kill this guy. It's going to be really brutal." But mm-hmm. it almost feels like, I mean, not the morally right, but the structurally right driving point. You know, it's interesting that it premiered at the Shakespeare Festival because so many of the kinds of ways the characters interact are so Shakespearean in the ways that they're what they're doing professionally, their factory work is also mixed in and interfering with their personal lives. It feels yeah. like almost like the royal court, you know, where all the decisions mm-hmm. that are made about state has the same effects decisions on their families and their friends. And so it all winds together to be just messy and violent and brutal. And so you're right. It feels like Oscar's going to die. That's uh, it's terrible. But it's how it's got to go yeah. following the destiny of the play. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as we're talking about destiny and motive, I think everyone in this play has such a clear motive. Um, it's it's all necessary. You you there's and there's lines too that the other people and people have the presence of mind to acknowledge. Basically, it's Jason in the end. We're jumping right to the end, but uh, <laughs> it's it's Jason in the end that you know uh, can't can't open up his perspective fully enough to overcome the need to hurt Oscar. But Chris spends the whole time saying. He's just hustling. We're all hustling. You know, he's trying to calm him down. Um, but but the motive that Oscar has that he's he needs to make $3 an hour more than he makes as a busboy. He's right. been so trying to get let, into this job for forever. Well, let's jump in here and try to fill in some of the context. Yes, here. So, yes. Um, Cynthia is Chris's mother. They're, they're an African-American family. Mm-hmm. Tracy is uh, Jason's mother, and they're a white family. They both, all four of them, work together at the factory. Olmsteads? Am I saying that right, you think? Uh, yes, Olstead. Olstead. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they work at the factory. It's a steel tubing factory. And, yep. uh, you know, different than maybe a lot of plays about kind of working class people, all of them actually seem to like their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, it's menial. It's hard. They all recognize that it takes a toll on their bodies. But they they get paid well. They, yeah. you know, it's it feels like kind of a family factory where they know each other. They value mm-hmm. each other. And they have had to unionize um already and when somebody got hurt yep and now they're um they're you know they, they enjoy what they're doing and they get paid a lot but the the uh, Olstead factory decides that these plays are being paid too much for the work that they're mm-hmm. doing partially because they're unionized so they remove all of the uh, equipment and machinery that makes it necessary for you to be a union worker to work in that factory all the dangerous stuff so yep. it just becomes a line and basically truck packing 
So that mm-hmm. means that anybody can work those jobs, anybody that hire off the street. So they basically kick out all of the overpaid longtime workers um, yeah. and basically say, you can take a pay cut if you want to come back or don't come back. And they mm-hmm. hire a bunch of people for really cheap. Like Oscar. Oscar's a character we've met a few times. He works at the bar. Um, he is Colombian. And he elects to go ahead and take this, even though everybody around him at the bar is telling him not to because they've all been screwed over by the factory. And they feel like his decision to go and work for the factory is against their union organization efforts to get their jobs back. So he's stabbing them in the back. And his point is, you know, I just got to work. I just, I got to make money. None of you are my friends. You, they treat him pretty badly throughout the play. Yeah. So he says, you know, screw you. I'm going to go yeah. do what I have to do <laughs> to make money. It's nothing personal. They're just paying more. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go work. It has nothing to do with you. I'm not trying to offend you, but yeah. this is what I got to do. Mm-hmm. And Stan, the, uh, the, the bartender who is a, uh, he's a former worker at the, at the factory who got an injury. He's, 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 he's mentioned in the, in the context of the union back when he got his injury. Um, he has this great kind of inter, uh, exchange with Oscar about this. And he's saying, you know, in three years, they're going to work you to the core and bring you in bring in another group of people that want to work for $10 an hour. And you're making 11 right now. So you have both sides of it just saying, trying to, trying to advance their views, which are, they're both kind of in the right. I mean, Oscar wants needs to make money. He needs to make he needs to make the money that the factory offers. Um, I think Stan at one point been, he says, you know, he's got a bunch of family living yeah. in this like one bedroom apartment that he's got to mm-hmm. you know support. He's working yeah. to support his family like everybody else is. And none of these people have met his family. I think the line is, uh, "None of them come over and water my plants." Um, yeah, that, there's, they there's, don't come <laughs> into my house and water my plants. Yeah. Yep. So. So yeah, so just just so that's strongly opposed ideals and bonds. Yeah, so that's what creates this tension where the play builds to is that Chris and Jason, these two young guys, have been working at the factory. They're part of the group that gets kicked out because they're they, the factory thinks that they're overpaid. Um, and Oscar crosses the picket line. That's a big thing throughout the kind of the second half of the play. Once the union really starts to move, um, when you cross the line, that means you cross the picket line and go up to the factory to work for the crap wages that they're offering. Um, in effect, saying to all the union people, "You're on your own. I'm going to take the deal and support myself, and not all of you." And the yeah. tension is then Chris and Jason meet him in the bar. And are furious with him for, especially Jason, for crossing the line, for stabbing him in the back, they think, mm-hmm. um, and and taking those wages. And that creates this violent tension that makes you feel like, crap, we know that they're in prison, that they've been in prison for a long time. They're really yep. upset at Oscar. They're, the tension is real palpable. They're definitely about to kill this guy. Yep. Which leads to kind of a fun turnaround at the end, which we can talk about maybe a little bit later. Um, let's let's back up a little bit and talk about the the other kind of core central tension. Really, for me, what was the heart of the play, which is this group of three friends, the of uh, whoop, I'm spacing on it, Jesse and Tracy, yeah, Jesse and, and, Cynthia. Tracy and Cynthia. I think you're right yep. that the the 2000s narrative is mostly about this trio of women which makes it very odd that the oh you know the kind of the meta play the 2008 timeline of chris and jason getting out of prison isn't doesn't really have much to do with them they are in that timeline for a scene yep they each have a Um, scene they go home to their mothers after they've been out and so you get cynthia and tracy in it but you don't really see jesse i don't believe yeah i don't think you run into jesse at all in 2008 yeah it's sort of an odd parallel it it, i mean it, it works entirely it's 
the way that the play structure is moved, but it does seem odd that one timeline sort of has its own set of protagonists, another has their own, and yet the two timelines kind of cross mm-hmm. and interact very clearly. Yeah. And Jack, do you want to talk about what, I mean, the tension between those three women as the play goes on is about what? Why, why are they, why do they end up fighting? Yeah, most of it is kind of centered around this. Uh, the the higher ups at the at the factory are going to hire a position for the office, and they're they've kind of hearing through the grapevine that they want to make the decision to hire from the floor, which is uh, you know the floor of the factory where all the the production happens and the packing happens, which is something that's that hasn't like happened unheard before. Unheard of, yeah, they, yeah. They don't think that that's ever happened before. I think, in fact, I think at one point somebody says, "Well, they hired." I don't remember his name, Greg from the floor. And they say, no, he went to college and he came came back back. later to be a manager. It's not like they just picked him up from the floor. So it's maybe only happened one other time, sort of. Mm hmm. So it's kind of this it's world changing thing. And uh, Cynthia right away from the kind of the beginning, there's this 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 scene where they're all just three sheets to the wind. I think it's uh, Tracy's birthday. And uh, she Tracy, Cynthia and Cynthia are talking to Stan, the bartender, and Jesse is passed out on the table for most of it. And uh, this this position comes up and Cynthia says, well, I'm kind of thinking of applying for it. And uh, and this is a theme that's prevalent throughout Um uh, friends jumping on other friends success um, or or not even not even success they'll just jump on the dream of success yeah um, and and wind up uh, kind of kind of hampering in some way because uh, James or Jason does it to Chris as well uh, Chris has these dreams of going off to college and he doesn't tell Jason to begin with because Jason he knows and Jason does jump on him right away like you think you're better than us what what do you think is going on what, why, do you, why are you doing that yeah, you're so, going to come back here and make less than us anyway so when you say jump on you mean sort of like attacking somebody yes. has a dream and somebody else has to immediately beat it down as if working on the floor of this factory, even for good wages, that they all, mm-hmm. all of them say they get play, get paid a lot. They yeah, make enough says money the older to pay folks their mortgages. Like, yeah, $40 an hour or something like that. Yeah, but even that is, that's, that's the only kind of dream you can have. Yeah. If you try to dream beyond that, you think you're better, you're being foolish, you're going to mm-hmm. give something up. So that's what Tracy does to Cynthia when Cynthia says originally, I'm going to apply to be the manager. Yep. Yeah, she, but, she she says, well, I guess maybe I will too. And so yeah, right away, there's the, the this, this uh, uh After having conflict. said it's a stupid idea, Tracy says, well, maybe I'll do it too, which <laughs> yeah, is important later on because then Cynthia gets the job and yeah. Tracy is just bitter as all get out about it. Yeah, definitely. She's very bitter. She blames it on all sorts of things. She blames it on uh, saying no to sleeping with like the foreman up there. She blames it on Cynthia's race. She's uh, she she becomes a very black and Tracy's white. Remember, so it's like she kind of blames on affirmative action, like the higher ups wanted to hire a black person for the job. Mm hmm. So it really begins to drive a wedge into the friend the friend group. And I mean, bigger things are happening than just this friend group as well. Like the factory is starting. Cynthia starts to hear that the factory is going to start laying off people. And that and the the, the really kind of tricky thing is Tracy hears it before Cynthia tells them whether Cynthia knows or not. Tracy hears about it through Oscar, who asks her if 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 she if she knows how to get hired there better. And uh, he shows her a flyer that they posted at the, the Latino community 
community center that is hiring on these workers for uh, from them. And uh, this kind of blows up. Tracy brings in the flyer and confronts Cynthia with this after Cynthia gets the job. And um, that that starts a kind of chain of betrayal that you that you see this is this is this is the heartbreaking part for me anyway you see within the context of these birthday celebrations yeah. um you see uh Jesse's birthday effectively get ruined um they're all still there um but you see that you see that her birthday get ruined within this conflict but then it's Cynthia's birthday that really rips the carpet out from under you I feel yeah. like cuz she's in the bar by herself she's talking to Stan and her friends come in they're like why are you here you know they get back into the fight again why'd you come out to here and she just kind of lets drop that well it's my birthday and this is where we come to celebrate it's like oh yeah <laughs> yeah it it takes the moments that are supposed to be celebratory and turns all of them into fights yeah, um, really sours him. Yeah, it, it takes a lot away from him. And, you know, the the fact that Tracy and Jesse and even the two boys, Chris and Jason, feel betrayed by Cynthia as she takes this job as management, and then they start laying people off, and they move all the stuff away, and they say, well, mm. Cynthia, you must be working with them. And Cynthia ultimately decides not to quit her job or walk out with them um, to unionize and to stay with them. She says, well, I'm going to stay and fight. She has this great scene where she talk, She says, you know, one of us has got to be left standing to fight at the end yeah. of it all. And, but counter to that is also the sense that, and she has a couple monologues about it, that she's she's she can't give this up. She's worked so long on the floor and her family before her has worked so long on the floor and now she's overcome racism and sexism and all the hard labor and she's finally got this position as a manager. She should not have to give it up. It's, yeah. it's not about you. It's not, it's not personal between us. It's just me trying to do what's best for me. And I think if, if, I, if I had to write down for a test what the theme of the play is, I think it's this tension between the personal and the practical in our broader lives. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it seems to always be what comes between him. These characters have d totally different ideas about what things are personal and what things are just purely professional and practical. Um, yep. I think even at one point, Oscar says after, remember Oscar's the character who ends up He's the Colombian character who takes the job at the factory for no wages and kind of says, screw you to all the union people. And at one point, he even says to Tracy as she's yelling at him for taking this job and screwing everybody in the union over. She says, you know, she's yelling at him and Oscar says, it's not personal. And she says, it is to me or, yeah. or you know, something like that. And that for me just captures so much of this tension. Cynthia, who takes the manager job, she's saying, this is just what I got to do for me. I make a little more money. I get to be off my feet. Uh, you know, I, I finally have some respect. It's not personal. I'm not trying to diss you by staying when you leave to go strike with the union. It's just I got to do what I got to do. But for Tracy, it's deeply personal and it feels like a betrayal, even though, of course, Cynthia doesn't mean it to be betrayal. Yeah. And and Cynthia has that that kind of language throughout. You notice it. She calls um she keeps calling Tracy Bayer and these endearing terms throughout throughout these tirades. Tracy's throwing throwing tirades at her, and Cynthia is consistently at least written in the language, you know, still treating her like she's a close friend. It is this this is something that she needs, and it's beyond it's beyond 
what how she's affecting Tracy and Tracy just can't see past it. That was something that I wish the 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 2008 would have explained a little more is why Cynthia in the 2008 uh, timeline no longer has the job at the factory. Yeah, There's, I wondered that too. I agree. Yeah, because because it appears as though uh, she stays with the factory. I'm left. I'm left to assume that she stays in her job at the yeah, factory at the end of the 2000 timeline. Else, I if you know if you were an actor. That would be some playing Cynthia. That would be something that you'd have to kind of discover in order to play the character well is what happens after the end of the 2000s timeline when Jason and Chris, they commit their heinous crime. Remember, we, mm-hmm. we said, oh, it feels like he's going to kill Oscar. So you all know he's not going to kill Oscar. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe won't tell you what it actually happens. Um, but that's what it feels like. So that's the end of the 2000s timeline. And at that point, Cynthia still is the manager at the factory and has given no indications that she's going to quit. But jump to 2008, Chris, getting out of prison, sees his mom, Cynthia. She's had to give up her house and now lives in, I think, a small apartment. And she is not working there anymore. She's trying to pick up shifts cleaning and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I agree. You wonder why. And so if you're an actor, you're going to have to decide, well, did she, at after this heinous thing that Chris did and after all the striking, did she leave? Did she finally decide to walk out? Yep. Did, did the stress of Chris being put in prison cause her to lose her job? Did they eventually fire her? She does have some conspiracy theories as she goes about, maybe they just gave me this job so I could take the heat from everybody and they wouldn't get blamed or... So yep. maybe maybe when all that was done, management was kind of done with her and they let her go. You don't know. That would be something that you'll have to kind of investigate and create for yourself as an actress. Yeah. Yeah, there is there is just like the slightest mention about the plant closing. I think uh, in, in one of the final scenes in the 2008 timeline, they talk about the plant closing. But you wonder, like, I still wonder, like, how long did she stay with them? Yeah. Was it mm-hmm. was it in, was it a part of the, Yeah. The, the, the biggest the biggest moment to make the decision on is did she leave after the terrible crime that they committed and the fallout from that? Um, there was there was there was no reconcil- reconciliation between her and Tracy. You learn in the 2008 timeline that they yeah. are very bitterly divided. They're not even trying to be friends anymore. Or try to be in the same places. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, that's that would be a killer, a killer thing to know, in terms of, yeah. of playing the character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's this sort of um, there's this trend I feel in. In more contemporary scripts, you know, scripts like The Humans, like this play, um, where the play, or or like Rabbit Hole, too, kind of ends this way, where the play ends in sort of this unresolved resolution. <laughs> yeah. Um, oftentimes yep. it'll be just kind of characters standing. Um, and you mm-hmm. kind of, the, the final beat of the play is more about this feeling of things being unsolved, but maybe the action of the play has come to a natural close. Uh, and, and this play is like that too. So I, you know, as with any of these plays, you are left wondering what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like a cliffhanger for Sweat Part Two, you know. But yeah. of course, I mean, actually, lots of playwrights have written, you know, more or less sequels to their plays, versions of their characters later on. And I don't know, Lynn Nottage may do that, but that uh, there probably won't be a Sweat Part Two. But right. it's a credit to her that I'm very interested in what will happen to the lives of these characters coming next, especially the two boys. There's not many of the other characters in the 2008 timeline in any substantive way. They kind of appear. Yeah. Um, yep. Really the core question for 2008 is what's going to happen now for Chris and Jason? Can they recover 
from the crime that they've committed, from the life they lived before, etc. Mm-hmm. What do you think that? What do you think that that is indicative of? That because I, I mean, I noticed that too, it, it, and it feels to me very much like like there is never any ending uh, to to things. Um, it, it feels like well, it, I, I think that it is a, a movement within play scripts to try to make plays more like real life. You know, there's yeah. a naturalist movement where you try to make the setting more like real life and you you know, you stage actors with their backs to the audience and you know, our theater professor always said you put the real meat on stage instead of the fake meat. Yep. Stuff like that. So there's there's that. And now that I think that there's a there's a move towards almost naturalism in storytelling. That mm. what you're seeing is a real cut from someone's real life. And in real life things don't end. Yeah. Except in death. So I suppose if all the characters die, that would be like the end of a play. But, you know, there are play scripts right. where there's a plot and that plot falls to an ending and there's a nice denouement and that story is over. The character story really is over. It goes back to yeah. normal life or changed mm-hmm. life. But there are these new scripts coming out which feel more like life doesn't change. It's almost part of the theme. Yeah. Nothing just will like change a- now. Yeah, you're just seeing like this this snapshot of someone's life as opposed like you you bracket out a, mo- a moment. There's some it's a it's a complicated moment in this instance. I mean, bracketed by a, a huge inciting incident that led these guys to jail, and now they're out of jail. Right. Um, but yeah, that's I, I don't have any any feeling that this is like anywhere near the end of their character development. So that, yeah, oh, right, which makes it a very interesting place to end that story. Mm-hmm. You know, they finally in the last scene. For those of you who haven't read it, they finally confront kind of the their crime for the first time that we see. They see, yep. they come in physical sight, both of them, of the results of what they've done. Mm, and which is heart-wrenching. It's terrible. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's it's actually worse because you think you, you think you know what they did a couple times. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's Until the, the last two pages of the script, yeah. you're pretty sure you know. <laughs> and then finally, the last beat of the play, really. You re- you realize, oh no! Yeah, they did that. Even it's worse than mm. you thought. Kind of that'd be an ethical question, but you'll know yeah. when you read it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, so they finally come face to face with the results of what they've done—the terrible, horrible, living physical results of what they've done—and that's the end of the play. I think like the last stage direction is there's apology in their eyes, but they cannot yeah. bring themselves to say it yet. Yeah, and that's and that's such an interesting ending because it doesn't feel resolved. Nothing does, and maybe that's uh, probably for sure. That's part of what Lynn Nottage is saying is that there is yeah. no resolution to problems like this. We mm-hmm. just go on. Yeah, we're always gonna feel like when our when we work with our friends and our families on whatever projects and real work and our hobbies, when they do something we don't like, even if it's purely quote professional, we're always gonna feel stabbed in the back. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be personal, even when people think it's professional. Yeah, and that will never end. That there is no resolution to that problem, which is sort of disheartening. And and also for me too, and this ties into kind of what I thought that the uh, a huge theme in the play was about was when do you cut bait and run? Like yeah, when no, do you push the, when do you push the reset button on your relationships? 
because they will never change. They're so fractured that you're you're in a constant cycle. I think Chris has the line that this is the first time that I was like, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow. This is after he's been in prison. He realizes he's not waking up tomorrow to go in to the factory, get really sore, get deaf, and then go and get drunk and wake up with a hangover. He's 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 managed <laughs> really awfully to break that cycle. And um, and and there's a line uh, Stan says this this line was one, the one that really stood out to me in the play. The one that I, I wound up mulling over uh, over the next couple of days after I read it was Stan's line about, uh, you know, we used to know as humans that when the well ran dry, we had to pick up and leave. Yeah. And that's something that it's not clear you know, you, you have the fights, the fights that people fought with the union before that turned out successfully, but those same fights are being carried through to this next fight. The fight they won caused them to get to $40 an hour, which is bringing about this fight, which is, well, it's cheaper just to move the f machines down to Mexico. Yeah. So at what point in there does someone just get lucky? Like they talk about their dad who golfs every day or something like that down in, down in Florida. One of the, one of the adult characters talks about that and you yeah, know, he, he got out in time that he got his pension for forever and he had finally retired, gotten his pension and now was living as he should. I, I, I think yeah. it was, uh, is it, I can't off the top of my head remember, is it Bernie or Benny? Brucey. Brucey, Brucey. So I think it's Yeah, Brucey. we haven't talked about it all yet. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Brucey's dad. So uh, let me see if I can get this. Brucey is Cynthia. She's the one who took the manager job and is the mother of Chris, one of the two boys mm -hmm. who's thrown in prison. So Brucey is Cynthia's ex-husband. And yes. he is in a long-standing fight with his own factory. He has been, it's almost been two years, and finally, finally at the conclusion of the play, I think there's sort of a two-year anniversary of it, of yeah. him being out of work, and every day, at least every workday as far as we know, going to stand on the picket lines in front of the factory, picketing, striking, for two almost two years now, yeah. trying to get his job back. And he's the one who has this uh, gut-wrenching monologue about, what did I do wrong? My dad went to the factory every day, worked until he retired, got his pension, moved to Florida, and is happily, wealthily retired. I yeah. worked at my factory for, I think he said, like 20, 30, 40 years, something like that, before they finally kicked me out. What did I do wrong to deserve that that my dad didn't? Right. And, and you know, what you're getting at might be part of it is there's this sense of these characters, all of them really, they just need to move on. They, they're mm. all stuck in this gross situation. And you, you, you think, you get the sense that any of them, if they picked up and moved would and moved to a different factory job in a different town, would live perfectly happy lives. But they're so stuck. Almost all the characters yeah. have, this, have their own story about how my father worked for 35 years at the factory and his father mm -hmm. worked 35 years before that. So gosh, darn it. I'll work for 35 years of, you know, there's the, yeah. there's this sense of they, their lineage is stuck in the town and that's what causes eventually them to f feel unable to break away. And so the resulting violence that ensues and backstabbing is the result of that. Like you're talking about the inability to move on. Yeah, there's a blind a blind nostalgia in looking back. Like I think it's Tracy has this. It's either Tracy or Jesse. It's uh, I Tracy. think it's Tracy yeah, yeah, yeah. has this 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 like monologue where she's she's uh, I think she's yelling at Oscar as uh, in in one of the scenes as he's as he's talking about taking over over a job at the factory and she talks about her father her grandfather who was uh, 
a craftsman, a woods craftsman, and uh, she she talks about how he he used to craft beautiful buildings and 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 took took her into the buildings downtown in in Reading, Pennsylvania, where this this play takes place, and showed her the 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 little etchings that he would would do for her. And now they go downtown, and it's all covered over in sheetrock, and and it's all you know lit lit with um, fluorescence, and uh, so there's this there's this hearkening back to something that no longer exists, and and and. And the choice whether to adapt and change to the new order um, becomes the fight that they are fighting as the union against against the factory. Yeah, that's a good crossover because one thing that I want to talk about that I think is, uh, you know, I'm I'm a director. I, I direct just as frequently as I can. And so reading the play at the beginning of every scene, she begins the scene with a recap of the news mm, on yes. the date that the that the scene takes place and the scene, almost all the scenes take place uh, basically a couple months apart. Um, you, you have a scene and a couple months later, there's the next scene, a couple months later, the next scene, the in the 2000s timeline, at least the 2008 timeline, I think is a little more advanced and it moves a little more quickly than that. But the 2000 yeah. timeline is just a couple months apart. So every couple of months you get this different sense of the news. Um, and you know, the two thousands were, uh, there was the financial boom and then there was a drop when the tech market crashed. And there was a lot of booming again, as they were able to provide, you know, free and reduced lunches to school kids and mm-hmm. stock markets were on the rise and unemployment was down to really low. And then you flip to the 2008 timeline where it happens just at the conclusion of the housing crash. Um, yep. and the economy is now tanking. And so there's all these news clippings and, you wonder what I, I'd love to ask Lynn Nottage what she wants the reader or the director to do with those. How does she want? How does she want them to be utilized? Yeah, and it's not clear in there. Like, there's cert- certainly there's opportunity to project it somewhere. I would I would absolutely fight hard if I were on a production team to have them in there somewhere. I agree because at the end of the play, there's a whole scene that's called transition and the scene has no characters or anything all the scene is it's called the transition scene is just the news just news yep so yeah she can't sure i mean she can't just be giving dramaturgical advice to the production team about what might have been going on in the character's lives surely she means them to be in that news to be involved in the play somehow and actually occasionally the characters kind of comment on what's going on around them there's some comment about the republican presidential debates and Mm -hmm. such and such um but they're but the news isn't isn't very closely tied with the action of the play. I couldn't see any immediate yeah. like comparisons between, well, the news seems good, so this is a good scene. This news right. seems bad. This is a bad. You know, I didn't see anything as obvious as that, at least. Perhaps if I were doing a directorial analysis, I would catch something deeper. Yeah, and even the the news about reading Pennsylvania that makes its way into those do, doesn't really have to do, for the most part, with the action of yeah, the story. Yeah, right, it's, because she gives a couple lines of national news, and then yeah. she always ends that news paragraph with a line of what's going on in reading Pennsylvania. So, some, like one time, there's like, oh, there's a murder in reading yeah. Pennsylvania this week. Four people uh, shot in gang-related violence or something. Yeah, but the characters don't comment on it. Yeah. But then other times, it's as benign as like. It's fall, so there's a farmer's market in the Reading Town Square. <laughs> yeah, so yep. It's like, I mean, it does. the news does not seem like it's so intimately tied with the action of the characters. But of course, Lynn Nottage, we, you know, being such a smart player, at right, this play, we have, having won the Pulitzer, you, you know, it's definitely an intentional choice 
And it's an intentional choice to prevent, almost physically prevent the production team from omitting them from the play by making a whole transition scene be just news. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant move there because you know that that's going to be one of the first things that a production team says, oh, no, we don't need to do that. Um and, and whether that's, you know, it doesn't, whether that's, uh, you, you could, you could actually shoot those sections, like do a local news broadcast. You could do audio over, like it's a radio broadcast. Uh-huh. You can do projections, and whatever so what, you need to, but I don't do think they, it's, yeah. What do they bring? So let's assume that you projected them. That's probably mm-hmm. the, the way that most modern theater is headed. Um, that mm-hmm. you would just have a projector, project them onto a piece of the set, more yep. than likely, um, that is more flat, so you could have them on there and it would just display the news before each scene. So mm-hmm. what what does that bring, reading this news before you read the scene? Um, yeah. or, or if you were seeing the play, seeing the news before you see the scene. Wh- wh- what insight, what does that bring to watching the scene take place? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's Uber, it's so much immersion, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm too young to be able to envision where I, where I was when those things happened, but certainly, um, people just a little bit older than me would be able to envision where they were when they watched the Republican presidential debate, when Bush was running for presidency. Um, you, you, you enter into it with that familiarity and then you also get the added context of this town. You're trying to get to, you're trying to, to emulate with these people and their struggle because, you know, oh, I don't work in a factory. I don't know. Like I have not felt, felt that level of understanding with them. So the more context you get for their, uh, their world and what's happening around them within the context of that world. And then if you have experienced as well, some of the things that are happening in the national news, I think at one point they talk about a song by Beyonce going to the top or something like that. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the Philadelphia baseball team was playing in the championships at one point. That was part of the reading local news. Yeah. I, Mm-hmm. I agree with you. For me too, part of what it does is, um, and, and I think it, this what I'm what, what what I get from it mostly has to do with the contrast between the news in the 2000s and the news in the 2008s. Because the news in the 2008s, mm-hmm. all the news sections of those scenes mostly revolve around the stock market crash, the yeah. and the economic fallout from that and needing to bail out the banks and such. And most of the news from the 2000s, not all of it, but most of it has to do with getting ready for the Republican presidential debates and getting ready for the election and the stock markets are good right now. And so there's this sense when you go back and forth because you actually start in 2008 with the stock market crash and then you go back to the next and the next scene's news is like stock market's at an all-time high everybody you know blah 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 right and and so for me it sets up that feeling of things will fall apart and they're going to fall apart in part because of the greed and the poor decisions of the people who are in charge Yep. You know, the factory owners and workers at the Olstead factory are almost, I think, in, you know, personally, I think in t- almost entirely responsible for the, you know, the way the position they put Cynthia in in regards to her friends and yeah. striking and such and such like that. But of course, that gets back to that theme. Of course, the factory work, the factory managers would say, well, it's just it's just professional. It's just trying to save money. Right. And we're just trying we're... to do what we have to do. But that it, mm-hmm. that thinking, I think that makes it inevitable that something like the stock market crash then in 2008 would happen. 
And that maybe for me, it sets up some of that dynamic that these attitudes of it's not about you. I'm not stabbing you in the back. I'm just doing what's best for me. And that, that has, I, I, you know, if you try to say that in the best way that you can, meaning it the best <laughs> way you can, I just got to do what's right for me. It's yeah. those attitudes that inevitably result in horrible violence. Yep. That compound everybody else's personal needs into, <laughs> into something that is ultimately a conflict. Right. And, and setting the 2008, you know, the aftermath of the boys getting out of prison and their crime, setting mm-hmm. that in the aftermath of the stock market crash, I think brings that home. It says that the, uh, you know, the, the economic world, the societal world, when these boys get out, is it, they, they're both reeling from the decisions yeah. to prioritize getting ahead, getting what you think you deserve, getting your money over your friends, your family, your society, your community. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to talk about. It's it's a really, really good play. I was. Yeah, it's a really good play, and and I I think I like the decision that we've made so like on the fly to not talk about what is in effect the last two pages of the play. Yeah, when you finally um, learn the end, and, yeah. and you should read it because it. it it yeah. Cru- I mean, maybe don't read it on a bad night because it crush. It's crushing. It, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I mean, in general, we'll be talking about these plays in detail. So expect spoilers. But I think I think we'll try to save something each time because we want to have the conversation with you as well after this. Um, so please read the play. It's a really good play. Do the play. Yeah, um, as always, if you ever want to do any of the plays that Jackson and I are talking about, we're only talking about plays that we like. Yeah. So that means yep. that they're plays we want to do someday. So if you ever want to do one of these plays, if you're right. where Jackson is or where I am, yeah. or want to drive there, let us know. Mm-hmm. We'll be happy us. to do it with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or even do just a staged reading or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want. But especially like this play, this, uh, in general, I'm excited that, you know, more and more we're seeing plays about vernacular real life situations. Um and these are and 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 situations that people aren't exposed to on a regular basis. Like I am not exposed to this level of of uh, you know uh, oh shoot middle class America um, on a regular basis. I come from a, a tourist town. I mean, we <laughs> I come from restaurant business. I have no uh, sense of, of of ability or context for this kind of work. But my entire family grew up in Wisconsin and had this kind of work growing up. So yeah, and and I love that these these plays take these real life familial personal deeply mm-hmm. uh, deeply human moments i lost my job and you're going to go take it i mean what could be what could feel more like a betrayal than that and yet what could be more two sided yeah you know the one side i got to do what i got to do the other side i got to do what i got to do and so they take those and they put them into this beautiful philosophically argumentative context it i think it really lynn nodge especially is really good at making philosophy and poetry and literature out of these regular everyday life betrayals in a yeah. apparel which is the play i mentioned at the beginning is a great example of that too mm-hmm. yeah so read it hit us up on social media about the play. We'd love to have the conversation. This is going to be so much more fun, everyone, if we have a conversation with you as well. Um, so please reach out to us on social media, on Facebook. Uh, we'll be on Instagram and Twitter as well, but Facebook is probably one of the better ways to have a conversation of this magnitude. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to talk with you. And uh, I think that's it for Sweat. Yep. I'm Jacob Christensen. I'm Jackson Nikolai. And we'll talk about a new play soon. 
Yes. We'll see you next time. Bye.